0: Welcome to series two of the writing Round the kids podcast where we talk to a wide range of women writers who kindly share their experiences and tips. This
1: series is jam-packed with brilliant writers from lots of different genres so there's something for everyone. We hope you enjoy.
0: Hello and welcome to the Writing Around the Kids podcast. I'm Sam. And I'm Anna and we are absolutely delighted to have Lisa Jewell with us today. Hi Lisa. Hi, hello. Hi, so Lisa is a New York Times and Sunday Times number one best-selling author who has been published worldwide in over 25 languages. Lisa has written a number of dark psychological thrillers including She Was Gone, The Family Upstairs, The Night She Disappeared and The Family Remains, all of which were number one Sunday Times bestsellers. She has been likened to Agatha Christie and Ruth Rendell and has been described as a British Leanne Moriarty. She has sold 10 million copies worldwide and she lives in North London with her husband, two teenage daughters and the best dog in the world. Lisa has written a total of 21 novels with the latest None of This Is True due to be published in July 2023. Welcome, Lisa. Welcome, Lisa.
1: Thank you for having me. Oh, it's so lovely to have you. And so um, Lisa's going to read to us from The Family Remains, which is um, out now in paperback. So I'll just read the blurb. Early morning, on the foreshore of the River Thames, a bag of bones is discovered. Human bones. DCI Samuel Wuzu quickly sends the bag for forensic examination. The bones are those of a young woman killed by a blow to the head many years ago. Also inside the bag is a trail of clues which which leads DCI Awuzu to a mansion in Chelsea, where 30 years previously, three people lay dead, while a baby upstairs waited for someone to pick her up. Four deaths, an unsolved mystery, a family whose secrets can't stay buried forever.
2: Yay! <laughs> <laughs> Over to you Lisa (sighs) Okay well I'm actually going to read a bit about a character Who's not mentioned um, (laughs) in the blurb There's quite a lot going on in this book And this is a character called Rachel This is her first chapter July 2018 Groggy with sleep Rachel peered at the screen of her phone A French number The phone slipped from her hand onto the floor And she grabbed it up again Staring at the number with wide eyes Adrenaline charging through her even though it was barely seven in the morning. Finally, she pressed reply. Hello? Bonjour, good morning. This is Detective Avril Loubet from the Police Municipale in Nice. Is this Mrs Rachel Rimmer? Yes, she replied, speaking. Mrs Rimmer, I'm afraid I'm calling you with some very distressing news. Please tell me, are you alone? Yes, yes, I am. Is there anyone you can ask to be with you now? My father, he lives close, but please just tell me. Well, I'm afraid to say that early this morning, the body of your husband, Michael Rimmer, was discovered by his housekeeper in the basement of his house in Antibes. Rachel made a sound, a hard intake of breath, with a whoosh, like a steam train. Oh no, she said, no. I'm so sorry, but yes. And he appears to have been murdered with a stab wound several days ago. He's been dead at least since the weekend. Rachel sat up straight and moved the phone to her other ear. Is it? Do you know why or or who? The crime scene officers are in attendance. We will uncover every piece of evidence we can, but it seems that Mr Rimmer had not been operating his security cameras and his back door was unlocked. I'm very sorry I don't have anything more definite to share with you at this point, Mrs Rimmer. Very sorry indeed. Rachel turned off her phone and let it drop onto her lap she stared blankly for a moment towards the window where the summer sun was leaking through the edges of the blind. She sighed heavily, then she pulled her sleep mask back down, turned onto her side and went back to sleep. Da, da,
0: da. Oh. Oh, oh I absolutely loved this book I was listening it to an, an audio book and I was up till like two in the morning listening to it thinking just turn it off and go to sleep no I just need to find <laughs> out what yes. happens but um with um The Family Remains because it's a sequel to The Family Upstairs but you had said previously that you didn't want to write a sequel so
2: what yeah. changed your mind I'll tell you exactly what changed my mind. It was my readers. Um, <laughs> <laughs> because I really liked the ending of The Family Upstairs, but yeah. I was very much aware of the fact that the very last line of the very last chapter did invite the reader to start thinking about what was going to happen yeah, next.
0: absolutely.
2: Um, which I quite like. I like that sort of tingly feeling you can get at the end of a book sometimes but they just got to a point with my social media messages where so many people had written to me not asking me for a sequel but assuming that there was going to be a sequel Um, And I kept saying no and I kept saying no. And then eventually I thought, you know what? I'd actually quite like to write about Henry again. I would like to see what happens when Henry goes to find Finn. And actually, I just read that little Rachel chapter. I thought I would really like to know about Michael's wife. Yeah. um, Because in the first book, we only hear about her in, in passing. Um, And I thought, I wonder what her relationship with Michael was like. And yeah, so once all these sort of little ideas started dropping into my head, I thought, actually, you know what, it could be really fun to revisit this story, but to bring in some new elements and some new characters to freshen it up. And it is, it's a very different book. I would say that while The Family Upstairs is more of a sort of dark mystery, The Family Remains is much more of a sort of running against the clock, yeah. sort of ticking time bomb of a book where everything's about to go off. And, um, yeah, so it's got a completely different vibe, but it is it is definitely a follow-up to the first one.
0: Oh, definitely. And it felt so
2: high stakes as well. It was just, yeah, yeah very stakes. tense. That's, that's exactly the expression I was looking for, yeah, high stakes. <laughs>
1: yeah, I think that, um, you know, you're the the kind of... Pace and the hooks in your writing are um, so compelling that yeah, like more than once I've been reading things of yours and I've literally, like Anna said, been up till two o'clock in the morning and I just need to know for the next bit. <laughs> um, does that those um, obviously now you've written a lot of books as well? Does that come quite naturally like that those that pace and so on, or does that yeah. come more in the edit?
2: No, the pace is, I think, very much written into the first draft. That's there already. Um, And I think that is a product of the way that I write, Mm. which is very by the seat of my pants. (laughs) I don't know what I'm doing. I come to my screen every day thinking what the hell's going to happen today. Um, And I also kind of because I don't have a plan that I'm working to, I need to give myself things to hang on to to give me the momentum to keep going. So I'm constantly putting things in there to keep me going. Yeah. Um, and that obviously works very well in terms of pacing the book and making it readable for readers um, and page tourney. Um Yeah, so at the end, every single writing session, I need something to have happened or some question to be, suddenly um, a question mark to suddenly appear on, on something or, you know, something has to happen. Um, and yeah. It, which is a really good byproduct of working without a plan, I think, is that natural inbuilt paciness.
0: So when you say you don't you work without a plan, how much mm. of a not a plan do you
2: have when you sit oh, down? I know literally nothing. Literally, utterly nothing. Um, I start writing a book. So I've generally had one strong feeling of something I want to write about and it's Uh quite often it's a person I've seen in passing on the street who's made me start wondering about them and who they are and what their life is and um and then obviously you can't just you know you need something a little bit more than that so I'll, I'll sort of cogitate on on that for a while and then I'll think I'll find something else that sort of um, Piques my interest, and think, well, could I make those two little ideas work yeah. together? And then another, and then another. So I usually start off with about three things that I really want to write about. It can be a house, it can be a setting, it can be a feeling, it could be a, a dilemma. Um, it's generally a person, um, and then I just start, and I literally have nothing else. I don't have any clue, any pre-planned notion of what's going to happen to these people. And you know, quite often my books are multi point of view
1: yeah.
2: Yeah. Um, so a lot a lot of the characters who turn up in my books as, a, as an as an extra point of view I only bring in at the first moment that the reader meets them I didn't know that I was going to be writing about them until their first chapter so quite often if a reader you know has read three chapters from other characters points of view and then they get to a chapter with a new character that's the precise moment that I realized I needed that character to come in and help me tell the story um, yeah so it is really like yeah feet of pants stuff
0: <laughs> but that energy really comes through From on the, the page, page so. yeah. absolutely and it's really interesting what you say about character and um I know that sometimes you've, you've kind of observed people and then they've and then they've made their way into your books and all of your characters feel so hugely well-rounded so would you say that uh, yes it was the character is often the starting point as opposed to kind of planning yeah. the plot as it were
2: Oh, absolutely. Yeah. No, the, the characters are the characters. I couldn't write the books without the characters, and every single character that's in my books is there because they're going to help me tell the story. Oh, yeah. um, and so they are they have to be exactly the right person. They have to have exactly the right perspective on the story um, and exactly the right sort of personality in order to, you know, push push the narrative along for me and for the reader. Uh, so the characters are everything. Um, and I do, I, I quite like the excitement of uh, sitting down to write a book with one very strong character in my head, but then not knowing who's going to turn up later on. Yeah, <laughs> That's just like, yeah, that's always a surprise um, and uh, yeah, that's a fun, fun bit of working without a plan is not knowing who's going to show up. Yeah. yeah.
1: And then, you know, some of your your characters are um, their brains work in quite, you know, unique ways. Um, yeah. I've just read your the proof for none of this is true. And honestly, Josie oh. just made my skin crawl. Oh, um, yeah. How does it feel to spend time inside those characters that are maybe yeah. a, a bit more challenging?
2: Oh, it's the best. My creepy, I think I my, my creepy <laughs> characters, and I do creepy women yeah. really well. I've done some really creepy women over the course of my, my psychological thrillers. Um, and also Henry, I think, is slightly yeah. creepy, although yeah, I'm totally. very, very fond of Henry. I think he's actually quite lovable at the same time. The character you're talking about, um, Josie, and none of this is true, is, yeah, I think she's just pure creepy. Yeah, um, but Those are the best characters to write because I don't know I just to just spend time in the head of someone who sees the world in such a warped way um and I do think that's what gives people the creep factor who you meet in life yeah is that that it's just the way they see the world it's the way they perceive things so that's the way that they that that they approach you and that they talk to you is all based around what they think you think of them um so to to get inside the head of someone like that and sort of look at the world through their eyes um, is is an absolute gift. Um, yeah, I love writing creepy people.
0: <laughs> I love that phrase, the creep factor. That's brilliant. <laughs> yeah. So with yeah. your
2: your um kind of more, yeah
0: the the more kind of like creepy characters or the people who don't maybe align necessarily with your values, would you yes. have to? walk around with those characters in your head for some time to get to know them before you've... No. Put, you just... In fact, the
2: creepier they are, the more they just burst out. Oh, <laughs> brilliant. The weirder they are. So, for example, in The Family Upstairs, which is the book before The Family Remains, there's a character called Libby yeah. who is, in essence, I suppose, the main character because she's the first character that you meet.
1: Yeah.
2: Um, and she kind of carries the story because she's the one who inherits the house and has to un- uncover all the mysteries and the secrets. Um, but... She is just such a clean-cut girl there's there's no dark backstory for libby. There's no sense of peril for libby. There's no wondering who she is or what makes her tick or um she's just she's just all there. Um, yeah, she is what she is um and I actually i it was, it was, I hate to say this because I know a lot of my readers really liked Libby, but she was so boring to write. (laughs) She was so boring to write. And I never went inside her head. And I got towards the end of the book and I thought, i barely addressed the inside of Libby's head. The reader's not going to know what she thinks about anything. They're only going to see her in terms of this cipher into the secrets of the house. Mm. Um, So I did, I sort of had to force myself to think, okay, right, let's let's get into Libby's head for a little while. Um, But yes, those sorts of characters, move the plot along substantially and that's what her role was but they don't do that thing of of making the reader feel uncomfortable feel like they're you know getting under the skin of somebody who's completely different to them and that's much more fun.
1: Yeah, brilliant. And then um, also in terms of like your plots, some of the um, things that happen are quite bonkers, which I think yeah. makes brilliant fiction. But do you think that, um, you know, some readers kind of feel uh, dissatisfied by that? And they're like, oh, well, that would never happen in real life. So sort of where's the, yeah. the balance for you about, um, yeah. you know, using poetic license or just hoping that people will suspend reality?
2: Well, yes. And that's the thing. And my editor has said to me on, on many occasions when she's going through my draft, she said, don't worry about that. The reader's going to be reading it so quickly they won't even notice. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and obviously I do get feedback from readers who do notice things. And there are certain things. And you, I don't know if you would have felt it when you were reading that the none of this is true. I think that book, more than any of my books, I just powered through it and just didn't ask myself too many questions but generally speaking because I write through my characters I never let my characters do anything that I don't think that they would do instinctively um and because my characters feel like real people to me I like to think that every decision they make is based on them being a real person and not just to move the plot along but clearly I'm also as much as I'm a cipher for my characters I'm also writing a novel with a yeah, plot yeah. and sometimes you do have to you do have to push those little boundaries a little bit um and I would say if somebody went with a fine tooth comb through my books or most people's books you'd find things that are just like they say bonkers yeah just <laughs> like that wouldn't happen um but what always amazes me is sometimes I write things that just seem so extreme and so ridiculous i think i've pushed it too far this time you know for like and then she was gone with the math tutor kidnapping her student and keeping her in a basement and yeah all those things that happen and then you'll pick up a newspaper and read a story where that's happened and yeah yeah so for example in in the family upstairs david thompson who's the guy who infiltrates the mansion in chelsea and takes it over and turns it into a cult um which some people might think is bonkers, and how would anybody allow that to happen mm. to them? And what sort of mother would allow their children to be, you know, taken taken over by somebody else? And then I just watched this Netflix series called um, No, not Netflix. It's um, Disney Plus called Stolen Youth. Have you seen it? No. And he's basically this character is David Thompson, yeah. and he's he's real, right. and he actually did this, and he infiltrated someone's house and he took control over everybody, and so quite often the things that i write which i think where i think i'm pushing it too far these things actually do happen in real life
0: that's the thing isn't it you then realize that reality is sometimes almost more the crazy than fiction. <laughs> um, exactly you'd said about with uh, none of this is true about kind of powering through this did you was it that you wrote it in six months
2: Yeah, I started it in March last year. I finished the first draft in July, and then I delivered it in September. I mean, I've never—it's ridiculous. So, what does
0: your? I mean, uh, this sounds like maybe kind of an an unusual um, speed to write and uh, uh, to to kind of write a completed novel. But um, as as a day to day, what would what does your Kind of writing routine look like? What what does like a, a day in
2: least? Yes. So look I like? have been I've been a very regulated writer for very many years and the reason, well, one of the reasons why that book came out so quickly is because it just came out quickly. Yeah. Um but another reason why that book came out quickly is because I, I knew it had to because I, I had um signed a contract to write a second novel for a different publisher in a different genre. Uh-huh. Um, so I knew I had to write two books in a year. Um, so this has been a very different and very irregular year for me where none of my usual patterns and routines have applied. Um, but going on a regular year where I have a year to write a novel, um, I, yeah, I usually start in March. Um, I usually down tools for the summer holidays for six weeks and then pick it up again in September and deliver in December and then do all the major edits between January and March and then start again in March with the new novel. Um, And the routine with that is that for that first, for the bit between March and the summer holidays, I'm writing about a thousand words a day, sometimes right. less, maybe 500 on a poor day. But also in that period of time, if a friend is in town and says, what are you doing on Tuesday? Do you want to meet for lunch? I'll say yes. Yeah, um, <laughs> because I know I can afford to skip a day's writing. Um, but after the summer, come September, then I try and go from like a thousand to two thousand words a day. And if anybody invites me for lunch on a Tuesday lunchtime, I'll say no, thank you. I can't. I'm working. <laughs> Good heads up. <laughs> uh, yeah. So that's my that's my r- regular routine every year, and I like that. And I'm missing it, and I can't wait. To, <laughs> can't yeah. wait to go back to that. It's been quite. It's been quite full on. this two books in one year. Business, but, uh, yeah.
1: And so, that's do how you it works usually do you kind of sit down at your desk? And do nine to five in front of the computer or does it involve yeah, I, different things? I definitely
2: yeah? don't do nine to five. Any writer who sits at their desk for nine to five is just wasting their time. Yeah. <laughs> um, there really is. You can't, it's not a nine to five job. It really isn't a nine to five job. So I sort of divide it up. Um, I spend two hours in the morning uh, on my phone doing all my social media. Mm-hmm. So in Instagram and Twitter um, and what have you. And when I say doing my social media, I don't mean posting loads of interesting stuff because I don't really, it's just, Uh, replying to messages, acknowledging people who tag me in things and what have you. Um, And then I will spend a couple of hours doing all my admin and emails and then I'll break off and do some housework, take the dog for a walk, uh, have some lunch or if I need to go to the post office or something, I'll go out to the post office and then I'll come back to my desk, my desk being the kitchen table, uh, around 2pm and right through till about 6 if I can. It totally depends on... When my daughter gets home from school at four thirty, sometimes she just goes off and does her own thing, and sometimes she's just like, "No, engage with me, mother." Oh yes, um, you've got teenage so, yeah. girls, haven't you? Well, yeah. yeah, I've only got one at home at the moment; the yeah. other one's at uni. Um, but the one who's at home can be quite chatty when she gets back from school, <laughs> and, I, and I don't, I don't want to say go away. I'm yeah. writing, so, um, so yeah, so between, so I try and get all my words done by four thirty before my daughter gets home from school. Yeah. Um, but if she's not chatty when she gets home from school, or if she doesn't come straight straight back, or stays late or whatever, then I'll just keep on writing until she gets back.
1: Yeah, that's that. Um, that sort of time of day is my best writing time as well. But my yeah. kid, my kids are a bit younger still and still uh, kind of want my attention around that half three yeah. time. But so we get a bit yeah. Um, oh I honestly
2: that was I used to pay someone to collect my children from primary school and literally just stay with them till five. Yeah. yeah. Just for that precious hour and a half between three thirty and five, which was always my most productive time. <laughs>
0: See, I think I've got. It the, really is on the um, other end of the uh, the day scale to, to you and Sam, where I work best really early in the morning. But again, have younger children, and they can kind yeah. of sniff this out as well. Mm. So, yeah. Why can't we
2: just do it so that we're our most productive when the children are not in the house? I don't understand. It just just, doesn't seem how women's brains work But but it is. It's absolutely classic. Most writers I know are are either like writing in the mornings or later on. Yeah. And precisely at the moment that the children are in the house. So, Yeah.
0: (laughs) And can I ask, Lisa? Because you had quite a varied career before you came to writing. Could you tell us a bit about that, and then your kind of like your path into into becoming a writer?
2: Yeah. Well, so I did this. I wasn't very academic. Um, I didn't do A levels or go to university. I did this course um, called Fashion Promotion and Communication, a BTEC um, at art school in Epsom, um, and I left there in 1988 um, on a Friday. <laughs> and on the, mon- on the Monday, I started my job as the pattern room assistant at Warehouse, which is the high street fashion yeah. chain. So I worked yeah. at their head office. Um, and I worked there for a few years. I got promoted to their publicity department. So I did PR for Warehouse for a little while. Uh, then I got sacked. Um, well, I didn't get sacked, but constructively dismissed. Um, and then I was unemployed for a year. I was on the dole for a year. And then I got a job as a receptionist or Thomas Pink, the shirt makers at their head office in um, Battersea, where I worked for a year. And then I was promoted to be a PA to the head of marketing at Thomas Pink uh, and moved to their German street office. Um, and it was just, that's the point at which so I was in my mid-twenties by then. Yeah. Um, and then I lost that job. It was constructive, dismissed again. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and that was the point at which, There was an awful lot of other stuff going on in my life at the same time. But that was the point at which I decided that I was going to write a novel. Um, So I had, um, they gave me a redundancy payoff. So I knew I had a month. Um, I had enough money to pay my rent and what have you for a month before I needed to start looking for another job. Um, And I used that to write the first three chapters of Rouse Party, which um, was my debut novel. It came out in 1999 when I was 30. Yeah. and, yeah, that's how it all started. Oh, how brilliant. So, yes, yeah, not your classic route into being a novelist. No sort of English degree or or working as a journalist or whatever. Um, just, yeah. And did, girl, girl, a girl about town is what I was. Yeah. And a
0: real commitment to it as well, to say, you know, I've got a month. Let's go. Let's see what
1: yeah, I can do. Th- yeah. yeah, and th- was it yeah. right that that got um, that Ralph's party got picked up on th- on the first three chapters, or like you got someone interested? Yeah, at that point? The way, yeah, I was
2: very naughty. Someone misinformed me and said you don't need to have written the whole book before you before you um send it out, uh-huh. but you actually do need to have written the whole book. And I sent out the first three chapters and got an agent, an agent interest, yeah. off the back of that. And she asked to see the rest of it, assuming that I had the rest of it, uh-huh. um, and I didn't. So, um, yeah, I had to make some major upheavals to my life because um, I just, it, you know, I was really young and it wasn't the point in my life where I was going to stay home every night to write a novel after work. I wanted to go to the pub. Yeah. Um, so my boyfriend, uh, who's now my husband, who's my boyfriend at the time, said, why don't you move in with me and you don't need to pay rent anymore uh, and then you can just work part time. Yes, he's, he's, he's a hero. Um, so I moved in with him, which meant that I could work part-time and write the novel part-time, yeah. and it took me a year um, writing part-time, um, and yeah, then I gave it back to the agent who hadn't heard from me in a year. <laughs> was slightly confused about why it had taken me so long to yeah. send the rest of the book, <laughs> but it was worth it.
0: Oh, that's real teamwork as well, isn't it, to, to yeah. get the book finished. Yeah, brilliant.
2: Yeah, no, he actually said to me, I remember it so clearly, he said, do you know how many people get a letter from a literary agent like that? And, uh, and I thought, he's absolutely right. Hardly anybody gets a letter like that from a literary agent saying, please show me the rest of your work. So uh, it wasn't to be ignored. It so, wasn't to be
0: ignored. yeah. So now you're obviously a best-selling author who's been published in over 25 languages. Um, so, but what point did you feel like you could call yourself a writer? Was it when you got the the um, oh. request for the full manuscript, when you sent that off? You know, or was it with the, when you first no, held something in, was, in print?
2: I tell you exactly when it was. It was when my editor read the the um, the first draft of my second novel and said it's brilliant, oh. wonderful. Is it that classic second novel thing? Because the first one can be a fluke. It can just be that you wrote the right thing at the right time and it was a zeitgeisty thing and actually you haven't got anything else in you. Um, and the whole thing felt so unlikely. I was so young and I didn't have, as I say, the background of someone who I thought was the type of person who'd be published. Yeah. So the whole thing just felt like a ridiculous fairy tale and it did so well and it was so well received. And I just thought, this is madness. This is all going to fall apart, surely. And I remember feeling so... Uh, tied down with, uh, dragged down with doubt writing that second novel thinking here it is, this is the end of it now Yeah, about to blow it Uh, so yeah that was when I felt like a writer was when I submitted it to my editor and she said this is brilliant I can completely okay, understand good. that.
0: Yeah. Yeah. It's, a, it's a real thing, isn't it? That with writers worrying about that kind of almost like the, uh, the crap second album.
2: Yeah. That yes, is. your it's second exactly book's good and is. then, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So that was it. That was the moment and I remember it really clearly. Oh, how brilliant.
1: And um, obviously you've had a very long, brilliant career, but your kind of writing style and your genre has changed in that time. Did that sort of happen quite naturally or was that like a conscious decision to
2: yeah no it change. wasn't conscious at all I mean it was conscious in as much as every time I sat down to write a new novel I would be aware of the fact that I was changing but it wasn't like I sat down and thought okay I've had enough of all this. because I was right Rouse Party was a romantic comedy my first yeah. five or six novels were romantic comedies and there was never a point where I thought I've had enough of this I want to do something completely different mm. it was more that with every book I was growing up and changing and just sort of the focus shifted. So, you know, there were still romantic relationships in my middle novels, but they weren't the main focus of the book. And, and I introduced mysteries, you know, family secrets that needed to be uncovered in some of the sort of middle books as well. So that was all practicing for, you know, getting to sort of more the crimey side of, 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 of writing. Um, so it was just in increments, really, because I also didn't want to scare my publishers off. I didn't want to scare my readers off. I didn't want to do anything dramatic. And nothing was going wrong enough for me to think I needed to make a big change. Yeah, um, and It was if it, if, it, if it ain't broke, don't fix it sort of thing. But I couldn't help but change and evolve yeah. anyway. Um, so it was very, very organic and, and natural.
1: I really um, like the idea of having... Um... A reader that somehow has been in a weird bubble that sort of read Ralph's party, yeah, <laughs> and then, and then the know. family upstairs, and they're like, "What on earth is going on?" I know <laughs>
2: exactly, exactly, and, and I do. I have a, a, some new readers who um, come to me on social media and say, "I've just discovered you. I want to read your whole backlist. Where should what? How should I do it?" Yeah, and I always say. Just start with the newest one and work your way backwards. (laughs) Don't jump around. Don't just go willy nilly through my backlist because you're going to get some surprises along the way if you do that.
0: (laughs) So, um, Lisa, we've nearly come to the end and we just absolutely loved talking to you. And um, just as a final question, uh, some of our listeners are more new to writing themselves. And so, what advice would you give to somebody who was starting out at writing?
2: Oh my goodness! Well, I would suggest if you if you've literally not picked up a pen to write since you were at school, what I did, which was a really good kickstart for me, um, being in that in that situation, was I did some evening classes in creative writing. It was just an hour on a Monday night, uh, six o'clock in a, a local college, adult education college. Um, and I've always said nobody can teach you to write, but that just gives you the opportunity. You know, they give you little exercises, yeah, yeah. like write, write write, a descriptive piece about the inside of a room from your childhood or, or you know, uh, or write about, you know, somebody going out on a Friday night. Just the little chunks of things. Um, and I found that really, really helpful. Um, I mean, you can all, you don't need to go to an evening class. I guess there'd be lots of online things that you could do, writing exercises. Yeah. Um, I, I would also say... Um, you really really got to trust your instincts and not look around at the market and not look around at what other people are doing not try and imagine what publishers are looking for absolutely go with what's inside your gut yeah the thing I call them the the, the ideas that drop into my head I call them the golden egg I just (laughs) it feels like a big chicken in the sky has just like dropped a golden egg into my head (laughs) And it's never anything. It's not like a big idea. It's not like, wow, that's amazing. The the world is just waiting for this novel. It's just that, oh, that's quite interesting. I could really, really find, I I, I think I'd really enjoy spending some time exploring this idea. And then just don't overthink it. I just think a lot of first time writers just overthink um, and are worried that they're doing it wrong and just, You just need to absolutely go with your gut, find the thing that tickles your fancy and then just start writing and just see how you go. Um, And yeah, just get your head down and get on with it. And just, I was going to say, have fun. That's another really good piece of advice for writers. It's not necessarily fun. A lot of the time it's not fun at all. (laughs) But it's a project. And once you start, you just need to keep going until you get to the end.
0: Oh, that's brilliant. Thank you so much, Lisa. Such fantastic advice. Yeah,
1: we've it's been really great speaking with you today. And um, yeah, so um when this podcast airs the family remains will be out in paperback. So uh, people should go and get that. And then look out for None of This Is True, which is going to be out in July.
0: Thanks again for spending some time with us, Lisa. Oh,
2: thank you for having
0: me. It's been great. Thanks. Thanks. Bye. Bye.
1: We hope you found some inspiration in that chat. For more writing resources, go to our website, writingaroundthekids.co.uk, where you'll find
0: tips, prompts and links to our social media. And don't forget, you can still catch up on all the fab episodes from Series 1.